Three months and three prime ministers. Will Rishi Sunak be any less of a flop than the two leaders who went before him? To attempt an answer to that question, I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. And I would say this is a historic day, but it seems pretty run-of-the-mill that we have a new prime minister now. I'm half expecting um, Rishi Sunak to resign before I even make it back home on Friday, so I'm not getting too excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, don't, we, we barely need to analyse him. We should wait at least a couple of weeks to make sure he's going to hang around for a while. Rishi Sunak is Britain's next Prime Minister. He will be the third person to occupy the role in three months, and he does so without the public or even Tory party members having a vote. After the coronation, he gave this fairly wooden speech to TV cameras. I'd like to pay tribute to Liz Truss for her dedicated public service to the country. She has led with dignity and grace through a time of great change and under exceptionally difficult circumstances, both at home and abroad. I am humbled and honoured to have the support of my parliamentary colleagues and to be elected as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. It is the greatest privilege of my life to be able to serve the party I love and give back to the country I owe so much to. The United Kingdom is a great country, but there is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity, and I will make it my utmost priority to bring our party and our country together, because that is the only way we will overcome the challenges we face and build a better, more prosperous future for our children and our grandchildren. I pledge that I will serve you with integrity and humility, and I will work day in, day out to deliver for the British people. There seems to be some competition as to who can sound more wooden as PM. That was kind of even worse than, than Liz Truss, which is a difficult, a difficult achievement to achieve, I should say. You should never have an auto cue next to a camera. If you've got a camera and, and you can't put the auto cue in front of it, just read from notes, is my advice to anyone working in CCHQ. And of course, Sunak was crowned leader because last night his main competitor, Boris Johnson, dropped out of the race. Um, more on that later. And because Penny Morden was unable to meet the threshold of 100 MPs. Just minutes before that speech, Sunak was greeted by MPs and staff at Tory HQ. Matt Hancock put on a very, very brave face when he got blanked there, knowing that the whole country was watching, putting his arm out. Very, very cringe. Ash, um, I focused on, you know, some of the more mundane parts of what's having a new prime minister. Do you have any more profound thoughts and that he was kind of wooden and blanked Matt Hancock? It was astonishing just how wooden he was. He gave his maiden speech as Tory party leader with the same kind of affect as a doctor advising you of the importance of getting regular prostate examinations. <laughs> like there was absolutely no enthusiasm or optimism. It was frankly really quite weird. And I think one of the things that this points to is that we really have, in the words of Joe Lysett, reached the bottom of the barrel of Conservative MPs. So yes, he's more competent than Liz Truss, but that's like saying you've got a better bedside manner than Harold Shipman. It really is an astonishingly low bar. And the processes of 
democratic scrutiny, which should be applied to people who want the most important job that's available in the entire country, really haven't been going on for many, many years now. We've had Theresa May first becoming prime minister without a general election. Same with Boris Johnson first becomes prime minister without a general election. And then when it comes to 2019, you have all the forces of the establishment uniting to make sure that he gets over the line. He turns out to be a wholly unsuitable prime minister. So then who do we get? We get Liz Truss, who has absolutely zero qualifications for high office, and all she really wanted was to be in vogue in any case. And now we've got Rishi Sunak, who is not a particularly able politician. He lacks charisma. He hasn't even told us what he's going to do with the power that he's just been granted. And because he's following on from really one of the worst prime ministers this country has ever had, the entire commentariat is united in greeting our new sensible grown-up overlord without much attention being paid to whether or not he's going to be any good at the job. So those are some of my first impressions. And yeah, Rishi Sunak looks really underwhelming. But what's most damning of all, I think, is the system that brought us here. Let's talk about what Sunak stood on. Because as you said, there wasn't really much of a contest this time around. So he didn't make any pledges. We've barely heard from him at all. There hasn't been an interview even. I think that was the first time the public heard from him since he decided to stand that very bizarre, fairly absent of meaning speech, which he gave this afternoon. Of course, he had more to say, though, in the last leadership contest, which ended less than two months ago. We need a return to traditional conservative economic values. And that means honesty and responsibility, not fairy tales. As Prime Minister, what I want to do is cut VAT on energy bills to provide a little bit of extra help for people over the autumn and winter. But today I've been setting out my radical vision for where I want to take the economy after we get inflation under control. I want to cut income tax by 20%. That's one of the most far-reaching cuts to income tax that we've seen. The thing that we need to do to protect those people that I want to do is make sure that we get a grip of inflation. Because I tell you this, if, if we make the wrong decisions in the next few months, and everyone watching should, should really, this is the most important thing. If the new prime minister doesn't get this right, and we make decisions that might sound good in the short term, right? And you know, like, you know what? I'd love to be able to sit here and tell you I'm going to give everyone tens of billions of pounds mm-hmm. of tax cuts straight away. But I think, you know, unfunded tax cuts that risk fuel inflation are a mistake. They're a big gamble. Well, look, we all took a decision to protect the economy and support the NHS through COVID. And of course, we all knew there was a bill that we needed to pay for that. So the question is, should we pay that bill ourselves? Or do we put it on the country's credit card and pass the tab to our children and grandchildren to take care of? Now, I don't think that's right. I don't think it's responsible. And it's certainly not conservative. And that's what I wouldn't do as prime minister. Not- you know, when Liz is sitting here saying she's going to scrap the NHS levy, do you know who that benefits? That benefits the top 15% of earners, right? That's what that policy does. It's not going to help the people that David was asking about with the cost of living this winter, right? The policies I announced as Chancellor are targeted on those people because they are the people that need our help, right? It's going to be really tough. I managed to start changing the funding formulas to make sure that areas like this are getting the funding that they deserve because we inherited a bunch of formulas from the Labour Party that shoved all the funding into deprived urban areas, uh, and they, you know, that needed to be undone. I started the work of undoing that. What a thing to brag about. We used to send all this funding to deprived urban areas. Thanks to me, the money now goes to rich rural places, and he was speaking to a very wealthy rural constituency. It wasn't 
you know, somewhere which has rural poverty. It was a very cynical thing to say, caught on camera, of course. Now, of course, lots has changed since Rishi Sunak stood in that first campaign. Back then, the Tories hadn't yet crashed the pound or caused mortgage rates to rocket. And now, even though Sunak is formally in charge, it could be the markets and Chancellor Jeremy Hunt that are calling the shots. Although, given Sunak was the market's choice anyway, it might be difficult to tell the difference. Ash, we've had for the past couple of weeks, the media going on about £40 billion black holes. Jeremy Hunt is already drawing up what could be or what is set to be a cost-cutting budget. Are we about to have austerity imposed on us without any kind of mandate at all? The room is certainly there for an undemocratic imposition of austerity. And that's because the media in many places hasn't really moved on from the Cameron Osborne view of the economy, which is there's a national credit card. We've maxed it out. National debt works the exact same way as household debts. You've got to cut spending or do something about increasing your income, i.e. taxes. That basic framework for understanding how the economy works hasn't moved on at all. Now, what we saw with Liz Truss is, of course, you can't simply promise tax cuts and borrow to fund them because nobody really believes that simply cutting tax is going to magically result in growing the economy and increasing your tax intake. Because what we know is that if you cut taxes for the rich, it's a really unproductive use of money because the rich just hoard more of what they've got. It doesn't impact the poor or boost their spending power very much. And also very rich people and corporations have the ability to protect profits and income from taxation in a way that poorer people don't. So that's why currency markets reacted in the way that they did to Liz Truss's budget. And it was also really obvious that what she proposed was going to necessitate the increase in interest rates, because that's what her favourite economist, Patrick Minford, was saying all through the leadership campaign. The interest rates would have to go up to 7% for her tax cuts, not to worsen the inflationary crisis that we're now in. So with those things being the context, which is that Liz Truss has royally screwed the pooch when it comes to unfunded tax cuts, we've got a hospitable media environment when it comes to the austerity, imaginative underpinning, then yes, I do think you've got a lot of space for Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, if he stays on as chancellor, to impose an austerity budget. Where I think that maybe we are in a slightly different set of circumstances to 2015 is, of course, that we've got an 80-seat Conservative majority, which was won on the basis of increasing public spending to red wall seats. Now, levelling up was an empty slogan, but it signified something that was meaningful, even if the policy didn't follow through, which is there was going to be some level of regional redistribution, particularly when it comes to things like infrastructure and the NHS. Now, you can't have that and cuts to public spending, austerity budgets at the same time. So Rishi Sunak is kind of in a difficult position. Does he go for austerity 2.0, where he will have, I think, a decent amount of support amongst the media, perhaps not quite as much as there was in 2010, 2015, but a decent amount? Or does he try and shore up the electoral coalition, which was delivered to his party in 2019? I think that ultimately, maybe you get a bit of a hodgepodge. So you get big, scary noises about um, an austerity budget and you get something on the 31st of October, which is slightly less bad than what had been briefed. And therefore, people go, oh, sigh of relief. It still would be disastrous for local authorities, schools and the NHS. But perhaps, you know, it it would 
play against expectations to a certain extent, that might be where he falls in order to try and do both at the same time. But, you know, the political circumstances have changed since 2010, 2015. The Corbynite discrediting of austerity, I think, has been really meaningful in terms of shaping what's seen as the economic common sense of this country. And I think that there's a lot for the left to build on, but you can't expect the media to hold austerity-loving politicians to account. They're just not going to do it. In terms of what happens next, she should say Liz Truss is still the Prime Minister. She has to, you know, hand, she has to go speak to the King. Rishi Sunak has to go speak to the king. This is our ridiculous system. You don't vote for the prime minister, but the king has more of a say than the rest of us. She will give a speech at 10.15 a.m. tomorrow. Sunak will give a speech at 11.30. So that's when we'll hear his his Downing Street address. I think his speech this morning was at Conservative Party HQ, which is why the setup was so unimpressive. Rishi Sunak is the first person of colour to be prime minister of the UK. It's been talked a lot about in the press. I think a lot about in the international press as well. Ash... To what extent do you think this is a big deal? I think that this is a big deal in some ways, but not a big deal in the way that people are telling you that this is a big deal. So here's why Rishi Sunak becoming prime minister doesn't mean that we have entered the post-racial utopia where racist discrimination doesn't hold anyone back in the UK anymore. Quite frankly, Rishi Sunak is in many ways a very conventional prime minister. He went to Winchester College, he went to Oxford, he worked in the city and he's become prime minister by ascending through the ranks of the Conservative Party. That is the most nailed on way to achieve the highest office in the land that exists in our democracy. The second thing is that Rishi Sunak is very much in the mould of those black and Asian candidates who have done very well since David Cameron was leader of the Conservative Party. And I think this orientation towards diversity has been a deliberate Conservative Party strategy, because what it does is that it very effectively neutralizes the accusation and indeed the, quite frankly, actual observation that the Conservative Party is bad for people of colour by presenting an image of opportunity for all within its own ranks. Now, opportunity for all isn't quite true. It's opportunity for those candidates of colour, those MPs of colour and those cabinet ministers of colour who are more than willing to toe a particular line on race, culture and immigration. So rule number one, don't go on about racial discrimination, institutional racism or structural barriers to black and Asian success in this country. Rule number two is continue on with that conservative hegemonic uh, disposition that multiculturalism has failed. And number three, you stick to really hardline policies on immigration, like the hostile environment, like the Rwanda deportations, like these incredibly uh, stringent and restrictive conditions placed on asylum seekers. Now, if you do all those things, you can and indeed you will succeed within the Conservative Party because the incentive for the Conservative Party is different. It is entrenched racist policymaking while neutralising accusations of racism. For Labour, they've been spooked by decades of tabloid attack along the lines of political correctness gone mad, too aligned with cities and diverse populations and obsessed with identity politics and indeed too woke. So if the Labour Party ever decided to stop treating its black and Asian MPs like absolute shit, 
what they would face is an onslaught from the right-wing press that they've abandoned the white working class. Now, that was something that you heard an awful lot, particularly when he had Diane Abbott as Home Secretary. And that's also why Diane Abbott, Clive Lewis and Ipsana Begum have really just been left to the wolves. It's because it's politically convenient to not be seen standing up for your black and Asian MPs, right? That's that's what it takes the different rules between the Labour and Conservative Party on uh, the promotion of people of colour. Now, the second thing is why this is actually big, a big deal, but not in the way that you think. I think one of the most important electoral trends going forward for the next decade or two is that the fame vote is going to become a lot more fragmented. And that's because you have different strands of racism and different kinds of structural discrimination impacting different ethnic minorities in the UK. So you don't have as much of a aspect of economic discrimination and wealth inequality impacting many British Indians the same way you do British Pakistanis and British Bangladeshis. You have also different rates of educational achievement for those groups, which pretty much maps onto class. And you're seeing slightly similar trends impacting the differences between, you know, Afro and Caribbean groups. So there's different levels of economic discrimination impacting Black Caribbean people than there are for people from other Black African groups. Now, what that means is that you've got a different set of economic interests at play. So you'll have a greater divergence between the economic interests of, you know, solidly middle class British Indians and much more working class and, you know, economically deprived Pakistanis and Bangladeshis. And I think that what the Conservative Party have done is that they've also presented this diverse leadership phase, starting with Sajid Javid and then Rishi Sunak and Priti Patel and indeed Suala Braverman, because what they want to do is be able to capture those voters the other thing which I think is really important and meaningful is what's going on in India. So having Narendra Modi and his aggressive brand of far-right Hindutva nationalism also means that what you think of as a good relationship between Britain and India is one which is aligned to a set of policies which discriminate against uh, racial and ethnic minorities in India, and indeed have been described as fascistic and authoritarian and anti-democratic. Now, Rishi Sunak doesn't strike me as the kind of person who is going to put up a really solid opposition to that. And what worries me is that with the accession of Rishi Sunak to number 10, that some of those forces of Hindutva will find even more of a home in the UK than they already do. We've seen what that means in terms of community relations in Leicester. And because Rishi Sunak and Narendra Modi are actually really aligned when it comes to their vision of economic policy, you are not going to see the kind of opposition to Hindutva ideology that, you know, not just India, but also the South Asian diaspora in this country sorely, sorely need. Does Sunak or his wife, do they have connections to the government in India? I haven't really been sort of following that, that angle. So in terms of Sunak's wife, her father is one of the richest men in India. And the connections between you know, the Indian state and Rishi Sunak's father-in-law's company are actually pretty tight. And that's because it's a really authoritarian state and also because 
one of the defining pillars of Narendra Modi's policy is, look, India is open for business. What we want is corporate capital and we want to be able to have that kind of due economic role in the world as well. So, yeah, I think those connections are there that, you know, not necessarily at the level of joining hands at Wembley Stadium when Narendra Modi visits the UK. But I wonder if we're going to start heading in that direction. It's the thing on GB News they're obsessed with is that um, Jeremy Hunt's wife is or is of Chinese origin and she hosts some show about flowers. I don't know. I feel like it might be a good thing to have prime ministers sort of like with connections or top politicians with connections to these big sort of countries that we trade with. But I suppose that's a much longer conversation. Let's look at the other issue we're talking about. So you're saying, yeah, this is the first prime minister of color in the UK. The identity, is, is it an identity group, an identity characteristic? Anyway, the one that's probably more important is his wealth. Rishi Sunak is very rich and the public have noticed. So asked by Savanta Comrades to describe Rishi Sunak, these were the words most commonly used. So we've got... Rich is by far and away the most used term to describe Rishi Sunak. You've also got clever, capable, okay, and good, um, which he should be fairly pleased with. Liar is on there, but it's much smaller than capable and okay and good. So it's not looking terrible for him, but rich is the standout feature that people have noticed. And people are right to notice this. Rishi Sunak is very, very rich. This is from The Guardian. Sunak and his wife, Ashkata Murti, are sitting on a combined fortune of about £730 million, roughly double the estimated 300 to £350 million wealth of King Charles III and Camilla Queen Consort. Sunak, who earlier this year became the first frontline politician to ever be included in the Sunday Times rich list of the UK's wealthiest people, will also almost rival the king in terms of numbers of official residences. The former chancellor owns a portfolio of four properties spread across the world and valued at more than £15 million. Sunak, his wife and two daughters, Krishna and Anushka, spent most or spend most of the week at their five-bedroom muse house in Kensington, West London, which is estimated by estate agents to be worth more than £7 million. At the weekends, they retreat to a grade two listed Georgian manor house in the picturesque village of Kirby Sigston in his Richmond constituency in North Yorkshire. The house, which the couple bought for £1.5 million before he was elected as an MP in 2015, is now worth more than £2 million and has been transformed into something of a wellness retreat with a £400,000 indoor swimming pool, gym, yoga studio, hot tub and tennis court. Soaring energy costs mean it could cost more than £14,000 a year to heat the 12-metre by 5-metre pool, almost six times the average family's energy bill. Um, Rishi Sunak's personal swimming pool is controversial as the public pool in his constituency has been threatened with closure because of soaring energy bills. Ash, is Rishi Sunak just too rich to be prime minister, especially at a time when, you know, they're always talking about tightening our belts? Rishi Sunak is profoundly disconnected from the experiences of most of the people in the country that he's set to govern. And he doesn't seem to show any indication of closing that distance anytime soon. And one of the things that strikes me about him 
is that he kind of comes across as a bit of a Tim posh but dim. So there was that video clip which I remember gawping out with you just a few months ago where a young Rishi Sunak was like, well, you know, I've got uh, middle-class friends and upper-class friends, working-class friends, well, not working-class friends, of course, and talking about surprising the inner-city rough kids of London with the information that he was really from Winchester and from Oxford. He just seemed like somebody who'd been so cocooned by wealth and privilege that he had absolutely no idea how to interact with normal people. And that's not something that seems to have changed in the intervening decades. Again, during the leadership campaign, you had that ridiculous scene of Rishi Sunak trying and failing to pay for petrol with a contactless debit card. And then it turned out that the very ordinary focus group Kia that had been parked on the petrol station forecourt had been borrowed from a Sainsbury's employee. So this is somebody who I think just lacks connection with the real world and also doesn't show any sign that he is going to operate in the interests of the country rather than financial elites. That has been the bedrock of his economic philosophy since day one. Before he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, the thing that Rishi Sunak was really known for was wanting to have these sort of deregulated, low-tax, free port zones in the UK. And he was known as being more of a deficit hawk than Sajid Javid. Now, of course, when he became Chancellor of the Exchequer, he was a bit more flexible than all of that. But I don't think that those instincts have gone away. So it's not simply that Rishi Sunak is part of the 1% or 0.5% or 0.1% or whatever it may be, he's also shown every indication that that is precisely the class of people who he is going to govern in the interests of. If you're in the Sunday Times rich list, it must be 0.01 or I'm not very good at maths, but I I think you're getting into the very small proportions um, there. Maybe someone in the comments can can tell me the exact percentage if you're in the Sunday Times rich list of being one of the, the, the hundreds richest households in the UK. Let's go to our next story. This was Boris Johnson on Saturday ringing round Tory MPs begging for their nominations to be the next Prime Minister. By Sunday evening, he'd dropped out. This was the statement he made announcing that decision. In the last few days, I have been overwhelmed by the number of people who suggested that I should once again contest the Conservative Party leadership, both among the public and among friends and colleagues in Parliament. I have been attracted because I led our party into a massive election victory less than three years ago, and I believe I am therefore uniquely placed to avert a general election now. A general election would be a further disastrous distraction just when the government must focus on the economic pressures faced by families across the country. I believe I am well placed to deliver a Conservative victory in 2024, and tonight I can confirm that I have cleared the very high hurdle of 102 nominations, including a proposer and a seconder, and I could put my nomination in tomorrow. There is a very good chance that I would be successful in the election with Conservative Party members and that I could indeed be back in Downing Street on Friday. But in the course of the last days, I have sadly come to the conclusion that this would simply not be the right thing to do. You can't govern effectively unless you have a united party in Parliament. And though I have reached out to both Rishi and Penny because I hoped that we could come together in the national interest, we have sadly not been able to work out a way of doing this. Therefore, I am afraid the best thing is that I do not allow my nomination to go forward and commit my support to whoever succeeds. I believe I have much to offer, but I am afraid that this is simply not the right time. So it's a very Boris Johnson style, humble address. Uh, I could have won. I could have won the next general election. 
I am the right man for the job, but unfortunately the party is not united enough behind me and therefore I will take the decision in the national interest to refrain this time around from standing to be the God King of the country again. There was, of course, much speculation about whether there really were 102 nominations or whether this was just Johnson's saving face, but the secretary of the 1922 committee has since verified the claim. So apparently he did have the 102. Ash, I want your thoughts on that statement. Do you buy that Boris Johnson has for once put the national interest first, even though he could have become prime minister and won the 2024 general election? I mean, that statement was a bit like, you know, I would have gone to Woodgreen car park to fight your big brother, but I didn't because I'd be too scared of killing him with a single roundhouse kick. It was the epitome of self-aggrandizement. It was very little about the national interest and, and everything about Boris Johnson's particular brand of narcissism. The real reason why Boris Johnson didn't push forward with his leadership bid, even though he was able to secure the nominations, is twofold. One is that he couldn't convince both Penny Morden and Rishi Sunak to pull out, accept cabinet positions and allow Boris Johnson to return to the fray of uh, frontline politics unopposed. And the second thing is that if he did, in fact, go through to the membership and if he did, in fact, win, he would still have trouble putting together a government. We had not so long ago Boris Johnson being beset by the largest number of ministerial resignations in this democracy's history. And you would have a Conservative Party which would be ungovernable. He would be really stuck in terms of trying to pass legislation. And the likelihood is, is that he'd be a sitting duck prime minister. So from Boris Johnson's perspective, this is the right thing to do is you watch and you wait and you look for your next opportunity, which is what every opportunist is excellent at doing is identify the closing window and waiting for an opening one. It's got a kind of I'll be back element, hasn't it? Do you think we still haven't seen the last of Boris Johnson in frontline politics? We may have, we may not have. But what Boris Johnson can do in the meantime is take his Caribbean holidays paid for by God knows who and see if the economy gets better, see if Rishi Sunak totally fucks it, see if the Conservatives lose the next general election, because the position of being king across the water, which has been part of Boris Johnson's strategy for a really long time now, in relation to Theresa May set himself up as, you know, this prime minister in waiting, is quite a good one, because what you do is you enjoy political influence, you fire off some comment pieces for the Telegraph to state your position and, you know, do a little bit of horse trading, build up a power base for yourself. And then you swoop in when you think the time is right. It's something which demands very little of you and also means that you're not scrutinized the same way you would be if you're a prime minister, but has, you know, the the opportunity, the chance that you could return for the, chop, for the top job if that's a, a something which arises in, in his future. I mean, this seems like a really obvious choice for Boris Johnson. Don't go for it now and risk losing. Come in at a time when you're certain of your victory. It's also only 58. I mean, I'm sure he, I think he wants to become prime minister again, doesn't he? It used to be like, I don't know, it's such a bizarre state of mind. Where like, oh, I want to be prime minister again. I can't believe they didn't give me the chance I deserve. Of course, none of it is with any... No political project. Why does he want to be prime minister again? What does he want to do? What's the aim other than just self-aggrandizement? Very bizarre, but I don't think we've seen the last of him. Let's move on. 
Boris Johnson has left a number of his supporters with egg on their faces after withdrawing from the Tory leadership race, apparently without even telling them. But none have been more humiliated than Nadim Zahawi. It was at 8.58pm on Sunday night that Johnson pulled out of the running. Two minutes later, this article was published by The Telegraph. So it's by Nadim Zahawi. Get ready for Boris 2.0, the man who will make the Tories and Britain great again. And the, the subheading, fresher, stronger and more compassionate than before. I don't know what was supposed to have changed in the two weeks that suddenly made him more compassionate than before. He is the outstanding choice to lead our country through rough seas. He's a man who is very well known for dealing well with complicated crises. In any case, evidently neither Zahawi nor whoever schedules Telegraph articles had got the memo that Johnson was about to throw in the towel. But Zahawi didn't take long to acclimatise to the new reality. Only 29 minutes after his endorsement for Boris went live on the Telegraph website, Zahawi tweeted this, A day is a long time in politics, so is 29 minutes apparently. Given today's news, it's clear that we should turn to Rishi Sunak to become our next Prime Minister. Rishi is immensely talented, will command a strong majority in the Parliamentary Conservative Party, and will have my full support and loyalty. Now, embarrassingly for Zahawi, for a short time, both his endorsements for Johnson and Sunak existed online at the same time, depending on which web page you went to. And of course, this U-turn invited a lot of mockery of Zahawi. And it was well warranted because he has a strong record blowing in the wind. Back in July, when Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid resigned to try and topple their boss, Nadim Zahawi was more than happy to step up to become Chancellor for Boris Johnson. Less than 24 hours later, with the writing on the wall, Zahawi tweeted this, Prime Minister, this is not sustainable and it will only get worse for you, for the Conservative Party, and most importantly, for all of the country. You must do the right thing and go now. So it seems that you know between uh, Liz Truss taking over and Boris Johnson standing again, he became magically more compassionate this time around in the day between Nadim Zahawi getting a job and all of his colleagues resigning. Boris Johnson had magically got even more incompetent than even Zahawi could have imagined. Ash, Nadim Zahawi's screeching U-turns used to take him 24 hours. They now take 29 minutes. Should we count that as progress of sorts? This is one of the reasons why Boris Johnson would have made, would have found it quite difficult, I think, to stage a comeback in a manner which meant that he could govern, is that he's really pissed off a lot of people by humiliating them. He has absolutely no qualms about doing that whatsoever. Now, as you pointed out, this is exactly the kind of move that Nadim Zahawi himself move, uh, pulled, which is like, um, you know, yes, I'm going to back you. No, wait, you have to go. You know, Boris Johnson was kind of returning the favour. And I absolutely think that he knew what he was doing. But don't forget, in the sort of last days inside the bunker, when Michael Gove offered Boris Johnson the 9pm ultimatum to offer his resignation, Boris Johnson then sacked Gove at 8.59pm to, you know, give Gove the uh, undignified trophy of being the only person forced out of the cabinet rather than resigning of their own free will. So, I think that what this speaks to is that Boris Johnson really doesn't mind who he leaves twisting in the wind. He really doesn't mind humiliating other big hitters within the party. And that would have made it really hard for him to form a government. It is funny, though. It is funny. I mean, I don't think there's much sympathy going around for Nadine Dahawi, another very wealthy Tory politician who's got many other options if he's too humiliated 
um, to try and return to frontline politics. That doesn't mean he won't. Obviously, I think, I presume we're going to get um, Rishi's reshuffle tomorrow. So we'll see if he gets a promotion. Other big hitters to back Johnson in that chaotic weekend before he dropped out were Business Secretary Jacob Rees-Mogg, Transport Secretary Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, and the Foreign Secretary James Cleverly. And he also got the backing of Priti Patel. Ash, will backing Boris Johnson for this brief chaotic weekend, will that help or hinder these guys' careers? I mean, on one level, Rishi Sunak might be saying, I want to bring together the different wings of the party. So if you back Boris Johnson, that might actually be in your favour. On the other you know, end of the spectrum, this does make them all kind of look like idiots. I don't think it's going to hurt them too much. And one of the things which previous Conservative Party leaders have had to learn is that staffing your cabinet solely with loyalists and jettisoning others can also mean that you've got um, some very experienced political operators sitting on the back benches with little left to do other than plot your demise. So I don't necessarily think that Rishi Sunak is going to stock his cabinet solely with loyalists or indeed his government. There are junior ministerial positions to be filled as well. But one of the things that I think he will be aware of is that is if he gives too many jobs to people who are closely associated with Liz Truss and backed her disastrous mini budget, he will lose whatever honeymoon period he's able to claw back from the lobby. And people start to think that he's just as stupid as his predecessor, which would be fatal for his premiership. Next story. Nadine Doris has always been a passionate Boris Johnson ally. Perhaps that explains why, as the latest Tory leadership race got underway, her attitude to the possibility of a Johnson loss was always less party unity and much more watch the world burn. Here's what she had to say when Johnson finally withdrew from the race, leaving the way open for a Sunak premiership. So she said, Boris Johnson would have won members' votes, already had a mandate from the people. Rishi and Penny, despite requests from Boris, refused to unite, which would have made governing utterly impossible. Penny actually asked him to step aside for her. It will now be impossible to avoid a general election. This isn't the first time Doris has threatened her fellow Tories with the prospect of a general election. When Sunak took the lead in the race, she tweeted this, If Rishi Sunak were to win the focus of the Privileged Committee, I am absolutely certain would move straight onto Rishi Sunak and what he knew in order to embolden Labour calls for a general election. With Rishi, we will be in general election territory within weeks. Why the Privileges Committee focusing on Rishi Sunak would be a problem and them actually investigating Boris Johnson would not is unclear. Also a question, what did Rishi Nona do? So it's not hard to see what she said there as a little bit of a fret. They'll be asking what Rishi Sunak knows. Maybe Nadine Doris knows what he knows. I hope she um, reveals all. That would be entertaining. It has, of course, though, been a trying period for Doris since Johnson resigned as Prime Minister and his withdrawal from the race can't have been easy. But she has managed to show a lot more restraint than she did in 2016. That was the last time Johnson unexpectedly quit a leadership race. Doris isn't the only Tory who'd rather see a general election than a Sunak premiership. Christopher Chope is another Johnson ally who thinks the Tories should soon face the country. He has appeared on Radio 4's Today programme where he made his feelings clear. If uh, people who are now seeking the crown want to have... Uh 
the respect which comes from having a mandate, then what I'm saying is that the best way they can get that respect is by winning a mandate with the people. And, and that's why I think a general election is essentially the only answer. Otherwise, we're just going to go from bad to worse. The party is ungovernable um, in the House of Commons. And so we're going to have continuing rebellions as we try to change policies and so on. So I, I, I must say, I'm, I'm very pessimistic. I'm very angry. And I feel that Boris has been let down once again uh, by and undermined by our parliamentary colleagues. Another furious Johnson supporter is Zach Goldsmith, who tweeted this after Johnson withdrew. I don't see how we can have a third new prime minister and a policy programme that is miles away from the original manifesto without going to the country. Conservative MPs understandably don't want to and are legally not obliged to, but it will be morally unavoidable. Ash, what is your take on this. I mean, we've got a couple of MPs there, one Lord saying we need a general election. Of course, we'd need a few more Tories in that to actually bring one about. Will this actually be a threat that they sort of use against Rishi Sunak to try and get some leverage, perhaps? I think it'll be a useful threat for leverage, but realistically, it's not going to be something that's going to happen soon. You look at the polling, and if a general election was going to be held tomorrow, Conservatives would be facing total devastation. So no MP who wants to hold on to their very cushy job with all the lovely expenses and prestige that comes with it is going to be voting in favour of a general election unless they're confident that they've got, you know, something even cushier waiting for them on the outside world. Now, that might be the case for somebody like Zach Goldsmith, but that's not going to be the case for some, you know, someone who's only really been in politics for a couple of years, maybe only since the 2019 election. So I think that there will be a sense of uh, knuckling down, get behind the government, because don't don't forget the general election threat is something that works both ways. It's something that Rishi Sunak is also able to leverage against unruly backbenchers. But the thing is, in terms of there being a moral case for a general election, because we're going to have our third prime minister in as many months imposed on us, it's likely that there's going to be a huge amount of deviation from the 2019 election winning manifesto. That is a cut and dry case for having a general election, for having a mandate that comes from the electorate for the thing that you want to implement. But the legal mechanism is entirely within the hands of MPs who want to look after their own jobs. And unless or until public demand swells to the point where it's utterly unignorable, nothing's going to happen. Now, I think one of the reasons why the call for a general election has sort of been consigned to squawking into the ether the way I've been doing is because, quite frankly, the kinds of people who'd normally come out and build that kind of groundswell grassroots movement aren't particularly impressed with Keir Starmer. They're not willing to get behind him and say, "Okay, we want a general election because we have a real belief that you are going to improve the country and deal with the problems which drove us to this precipice in the first place. So in the absence of MPs having an incentive to call a general election and in the absence of a street movement which is able to capture the news cycle and make the case for a general election, I don't think we're going to see an early one. Of course, those two things could change, but I don't see it changing anytime soon. I think it probably is unlikely. At the same time, I do think it is a big challenge to the Conservative Party's legitimacy. And if they try and push through you know, anything too dramatic over the next two years, I think the fact that there is absolutely no mandate for it whatsoever, and there is a big expectation among the public that you know we should have a general election means that 
any protest movement will presumably be supercharged because you know no one voted for this. It's, it's going to be very difficult for Rishi Sunak to sort of stand up and say, "Look, I'm I'm for the silent majority. These people in the streets, we have to ignore them because he's got no evidence whatsoever that the majority of people do back him or his program. In fact, all the polls are suggesting the opposite. So you would you would expect this to make it difficult to push through anything too radical. Although, you know, they are choreographing a situation whereby, and the media are helping with this, we've got no choice but to do austerity. There is always a choice as to whether or not to do austerity, and they should not do it. But we're hearing the BBC Sky, everyone parroting, oh, there's this £40 billion black hole. By the way, the reason there is a £40 billion black hole is because there's an arbitrary target to say debt has to be falling in relation to GDP within three years. We don't need to keep to that, whatever. I was speaking to economist Joe Michel on a recent show who was explaining exactly why. Let's go to our final story. Reiki Ayola is a Welsh actress who starred in shows such as Black Mirror, Noughts and Crosses, Doctor Who and Silent Witness. But she was on the BBC this week promoting new TV drama, The Pact. Take a look at this surprising question she was asked. There are some people who will see this and they'll say that this is a, you know, a, a woke version <laughs> of a Welsh family. I can see you rolling your eyes. Tell me. If anybody wants to say that to me, what I would say first is explain what you mean by woke and then we can have the conversation. If you can't explain it, don't hand me that word. Don't use a word you cannot describe um, because you don't know what you mean. Or maybe you know exactly what you mean and you're afraid to say what you mean. So let's have that conversation. Not even afraid. You daren't. Do you know what I mean? Mm, I do. Sit there and tell me what you mean by woke. And then we can talk about whether this show is woke or not, because then I will introduce you to a family just like this one. So are you saying they don't exist when they clearly do? Are you saying that they're not allowed to exist? What do you mean by that? Let's have a proper conversation. Don't throw words around willy nilly when you're not afraid to say exactly what you mean. If you don't know, please be quiet because you are incredibly boring. Incredibly boring is such a good way to end that answer. Obviously, incredibly impressive answer. Lots of people, I think very understandably, got annoyed at the host for asking that question. It's worth saying um, that Reiki Ayola has responded herself by tweeting this. Um, so she tweeted, thanks for the question, Victoria, at BBC Breakfast, that's the host. No apology wanted or needed. Believe me, if I felt differently, you'd know. A loaded question, maybe, but I got to say on national TV what I've been saying to Adam's Met 66 in our kitchen for months. I'm glad it struck a chord. It's Adam Smith first, who I imagine is her partner, perhaps. Ash, what did you make of that exchange? I'm really glad to see it pulled out into the open that one of the ways that the word woke functions is as a euphemism for black or for diverse. So when you're talking about something being too woke, what you basically mean is, I think I'm seeing too many people of colour here in a setting where I don't expect to see them. And that's one of the functions of political correctness, moral panics, is that what it offers are synonyms and euphemisms which can conceal your racist subtext or your racist intention with plausibly deniable phraseology. And so to see uh, Raki Ayola pull that into uh, the realm of the said, the text rather than the subtext, I thought was really brilliant. What was really funny to me in kind of a dark way was the utter inanity of the BBC presenter Victoria. So when uh, Ayola was 
turning the question back, going, do you understand what I'm saying? She was going, hmm, yeah. But of course she didn't. She didn't understand that that was a criticism of her own line of questioning and the own way and the way in which she's hiding behind the racist sentiment of others in order to give it the legitimacy of being asked on the BBC. Because, of course, if what she'd said uh, is what was really being asked, which is people would say that a Welsh family can't be black, that would be absurd and and self-evidently a ridiculous and offensive thing to ask somebody on morning television. But when you click it in the word woke, you normally get to take the coward's way out of hiding behind that plausible deniability that I described. So I am so glad that this just got pulled out into the open and I hope to see more people doing it. Yeah, I mean, it was such a good answer because there is no... You said, what do you mean by woke? Is, it, is the family depicted in that show? Do they commit cancel? Are they constantly cancelling each other? Is the mother always cancelling the, the child or the other way around? What, what other meanings of woke could there be? You know, uh, are they always tiptoeing around? You know, they're, they're worried about what they're saying. I don't think that features in the show. So the only option you are saying, as you say, Ash, is are you saying we're too black to be Welsh? And the actress is Welsh. Obviously, there are lots of Welsh black families. But the idea, oh, this shouldn't be on our screens because it's too woke, is that you, you wouldn't say, are you too black to be Welsh? Which is what the question meant. I mean, I, I don't know where I stand on, you know, I think it is a a difficult balance as a journalist, as a host to say, do you ask an awkward question to prompt an answer? You know, in a way, it's a cop-out. Some people are saying this is too woke. Do you want a chance to respond to that? And then, uh, you know, something productive happened, but at the same time, it is an offensive question. What do you make of that, Ash? I mean, we've shown the tweet from the actress saying, don't apologize. Also, there were a lot of people, understandably, online saying that was a, well, a racist question, essentially. How, how would you navigate that? But the thing is, is that this is a discussion which is happening across the media about casting decisions, whether it's about something like The Rings of Power or House of the Dragon, which are two of the biggest series on television right now, or, you know, kind of smaller audience shows which are intended to reflect the changing demographics of the country that it depicts. These casting questions about is it realistic to cast people of color are happening in a much more direct way all of the time. And there's many ways in which you can pose that question. And obviously going, some people say a Welsh family can't be black. If you say that in a way which lends legitimacy to the question, that's obviously a ridiculous way to do it. But if you ask a question and you say, okay, there's been some backlash along these grounds, how does that make you feel? What do you think about the place that that's coming from? Does that worry you in terms of what roles and parts you take on? That's a way which sort of says, okay, well, we recognize that people who have melanin are allowed to appear on camera, but that it's occurring within a political context, which means that you do get a kind of backlash about it. I think that's a perfectly legitimate line of questioning. And to sort of, again, hide behind the plausible deniability, one of the things that it does is that it lends legitimacy to the idea that you can just object to the presence of people of colour because you're not objecting to seeing a black person or an Asian person or whoever it may be. You're objecting to woke ideology. What that does is that it creates space for racists to hide and you don't actually get to the question about casting and backlashes against diverse casting. A really interesting point. Let's wrap up there. Ash, it's been a pleasure to be joined by you. I can't wait to have you next week speaking live from London instead of Mexico City. Are you in Mexico City now? Is that still where you are? It's still Mexico City. And I can't wait to see who's going to be prime minister next week, Michael. Could be anyone. (laughs) Could be you. You need to uh, scrub up on all 300 or so conservative MPs because it could be any of them. 
who are prime minister next week. It will, of course, continue to be a very dramatic, eventful week in British politics, I'm sure. So do make sure to tune back in on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, thank you so much for watching. Thank you for your super chats. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.